Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh University History and Game Slack podcast. In this series of episodes, we will be talking to historians, game creators, heritage professionals, and others about history, games, and the places where they meet. I'm your host and moderator, Edward Gafton, and in this episode, I am very much pleased to be joined by Tomislav Tom Chipcic. Tom is a game designer and computer programmer from Croatia. Born in Šibenik, Tom spent a big part of his childhood and during the chaotic war years. This experience led to him becoming a passionate student of modern history, especially military history. Moving to Split after the war, Tom has been designing games for much of his life since. With the game for this episode, Brotherhood and Unity, his board game about the war uh, and Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992-1995, he aimed to capture the essence of that defining historical event and to bring it and to bring it to the wargaming table. Tom, thank you so much for being on. How are you doing today? Thank you for inviting me. I am doing quite well. It's very hot today, so I'm sweating a bit. I hope it doesn't show. <laughs> no worries, you look perfectly fine. For listeners Great. unfamiliar with Tom's game, Brotherhood and Unity is, and I'm quoting here from the website, a two to three player card driven war game which shows all of the major events of the Bosnian War, from the Siege of Sarajevo, shown in a separate detailed map, to the, the ferocious battles for the Posavina Corridor. The game simulates three distinct sides in the war Bosniaks, Serbs, and Croats, with military strength fluctuating based on historical facts, meaning that the Serbs, for example, have a much better starting position than the Bosniaks are struggling to organize an effective, effective fighting position. Also interesting is that there is no clear border separating these three distinct sides, meaning that players may very well form pragmatic alliances with former enemies, as was historically the case. Tom, you've mentioned growing up, and and, and I have here like the fact that you grew up during the time of the Bosnian War. How was that like for you? As a, as a broad opening question, how was how what do you remember of from the Bosnian War? What do you remember from your childhood? Well, my one of my best friends was from Sarajevo, and the another <laughs> best friend was from Banja Luka. So I, I know from from their personal accounts that uh, situation was very very dark indeed. I mean, there was a war in Croatia as well at that time, but it was a bit different for us because most of the military operations were over by the end of 1991 and from 1992 to 1995 in Croatia, at least in Šibenik, we had a sporadic shelling like terrorist shelling attacks and stuff like that. But in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there was a constant constant warfare mm. and i heard about stories from from siege of sarajevo how he uh, ran from the town at one point using a tunnel and got away from the fighting and how he was engaged in the fighting when he was 16 he was 16 having rifle defending the city from the outskirts of the city and then his father came and took him out of the city it was very uh, strange to hear something like that especially in the 1990s when we thought that war was more or less over forever you know mm. yeah I, how was it for you oh for me i wasn't yeah i wasn't necessarily born i'm uh, i'm born Are 90, younger yeah I'm, I'm much younger than that i'm 1997 so for me oh. uh again f- uh, for listeners i'm i am romanian so for me i hear stories of 89 i hear i hear stories of the of the bloody revolution that happened in romania but not nothing beyond that uh my father was uh 
uh, on military service to, during the actual like revolution and then he had a similar story of like being extremely young and having to 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 defend a military base from the people which is a, a different obviously much di different situation but uh yeah uh i i think we both happen to come from countries where war is not so such distant of a memory as it is uh anywhere yeah. and everywhere else maybe um, I want to ask you about Brotherhood and Units in particular. Was it a lifelong project? Um, did you always mean to make a game about the Bosnian War? Was it always in your mind? No, no, it came accidentally, actually, because uh, I always wanted to make a, a game about World War II in North Africa, mm -hmm. <laughs> about Rommel and Montgomery, and that's what I'm doing now. But it came when I read a book, a great book by a Croatian author, Davor uh, Marian, and book was about the uh, we call it homeland war that is a war in Croatia, and it's a big large book like this, uh, big one, mm -hmm. big one, and uh, in it, while reading it, as people do, I, I saw a material to make a game, and I said, why wouldn't I make a game out of this? Because I was already doing some games for myself and for my group of friends, and. At that moment, I didn't publish any game yet, but I created several games before it. And I said, why wouldn't I make a game about war in Croatia? And I started to do that. I made a map, made units, uh, um, defined the core mechanics, and realized slowly that I couldn't make a grand strategy game of war in Croatia, because war in Croatia was split between 1991 mm -hmm. and several shorter engagements, which happened here and there in the next four years. So, but what I realized that I could do similar, similar game for the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because uh, war in Bosnia and Herzegovina was uh, 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 connected to the war in Croatia. And then I started tinkering with the idea of making that game and uh, little by little it, it, it became the game we have now. Oh, wonderful. And yeah, uh, before we go on to, to, to ask you more, more questions, I want to mention to the listeners and viewers that like uh, everything that uh, Tom will mention in terms of like books, in terms of games will be linked in the descriptions. I suspect this will be a, a, a link heavy episode. So uh, for more information on Tom's video game about, you know, a campaign in North Africa, Attack at Dawn, there's a link to, to the website for the game. And also the Homeland War book, I'll ask you after, after the recording, uh, for you to, to send me the actual link so that um, uh, people who listen in and watch the podcast might enjoy uh, the resources aspect of this uh, podcast as well. So it wasn't always a, a, a game about um, the Bosnian war. Like you, you mentioned, like you want you wanted to just like make a game first of all. Um, how then in, in the process of like making Brotherhood and Unity, did you land on it being a card-driven war game. I'm personally not familiar with this particular subgenre of like war games. Could you tell us more about the history of this style of game and how you came to innovate on it with your with your game with Brotherhood and Unity? Well, uh, it's one of the one of my favorite uh, gaming mechanics, card-driven game, uh, and it there is a couple of great lectures on that topic. One by Volker Unki, who is one of the best designers using this game system. And the other one, I think, is by Brian Train, who also used it many times in a very, very successful way. But 
to to say it shortly, card-driven game system is a system where each and every action of the game is done by playing a card. And each card can be used in several different ways. Cards usually have a value, and that value gives you a certain amount of actions you can do. And actions can be anything from movement, attack, entrenchment, uh, I don't know, redeployment, reinforcement, whatever. And cards usually also have so-called event. And event is a historical event uh, described in a couple of sentences. And it's on a card, there is a usually a nice image, nice picture. You can even show it if you have some examples here. So when you play a card, you need to decide. You have a deck of cards and you have several of them in your hand. And as if you are playing a poker game, you need to decide which of these cards am I going to play? Am I going to play this card, which gives me this value and maybe this ability, this event, or this one? And that card play really gives an edge. Psychologically, it's fun for a human to play a card and uh, for him to decide uh, between this choice and this choice, which one is the better choice uh, now. Uh, that's the good thing about card-driven games. They give you a set of choices. Uh, they give you randomness because you don't have to use all of the cards in the deck for one game session. So if you use only a half of the deck, next time you will have another set of cards and maybe the game will go differently. And the third thing is that you can really put your history into these cards. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you have Sarajevo Sniper Alley, that can be one card. If you have, I don't know, Shelling of, of uh, Bihać or maybe the Fall of Srebrenica, you can put it in a card and give it in the game model, uh, several several uh, different actions that happen as a result of this event. So that's the beauty of card-driven games. And I can't be sure which game was the first one, but I think it was in the 1980s that mm -hmm. they first started employing them. But probably the biggest uh, uh, popularizer of this, this genre was Mark Herman one of my favorite designers and one of the best war game designers it, at this moment, who with his designs like For the People, We the People, with the American Revolution and American Civil War, really got this, this, this system to the next level, for instance. Yeah, yeah interesting. How, how is Brotherhood and Unity different from that? Like, what does it do different? How does it push the, the subgenre forward? Well, first of all, when you design a game, you don't start from scratch regarding mm -hmm. the game mechani mechanics. You, you actually have a toolbox of existing game mechanics for, from all the other oh, games that yeah. are out there. And uh, uh, you use, you pick and choose core mechanics, which will you use in your game. So you're not stealing from everybody. We are just mm -hmm. uh, borrowing from each other. And that's been happening for a, for a century now. So uh, what I did, uh, and what I do when I make uh, each and every new game, I first of all decide on the core principles. Uh, uh, how many players? How long will the game last? What will the subject be? And what type of game will it be? Will it be military, political, diplomatical, grand strategy or tactical level? And when I decide on 
from the core uh, core uh, goals of the design, then I decide on the mechanics. And then I have my toolbox with all mm -hmm. the other games I played, with all the other mechanics I know from card-driven games, hex encounter, from zone control, area control, everything. And then I try and see every of these mechanics, how do they fit my, my design goal? And uh, I decided early on that this will be a grand strategy game, a three-player game, and uh, I wanted it to be playable in one sitting, and that's mm -hmm. usually three, three, four hours maximum, because when you get around the table with a group of people, especially with two other people, and when you finally get together, uh, you have three, four hours maximum, mm -hmm. five at best times to, to play a game. And I didn't want this game to be saved for later because that would reduce the playability. So I wanted it to be short enough. And when I saw the systems like Paths of Glory, which is a great game, uh, which uses point-to-point -point movement between certain strategic locations on the map in combination with card-driven design, That's that was my starting point. And then slowly but surely I, I saw how I could streamline those mechanics, reduce the amount of uh, administrative work in order to speed up the gameplay. Mm. Because originally these kinds of games have uh, separate phases for movement. First of all, you move and then you attack. And then I wanted to, for instance, remove that to speed it up. And I had to tweak the rules in order to keep the gameplay at the same level, but to be a little bit faster. And I reduced the playing time by eliminating those phases. Or for instance, games usually have uh, unit names, unit designations. Each and every unit counter has certain set of combat factors and the name, for instance, first guards brigade, second mm -hmm. guards brigade. But when you look at it, if you really want to have those unit names, you need to increase your setup time for like 20 minutes. Because when you have three people placing each and every of those 20, 30 counters on exact spot on the board, it takes 15, 20 minutes per game to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of time. And then I said, I will not have unit names. Some of people don't like it, but my argument is that makes game faster. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, most of those combat factors are the same. Uh, I have separate elite units and separate standard units, which have different combat factors and are e easily recognizable, but you don't have to spend time trying to find where each and every one of those goes and things like that. And um, I really try to optimize the gameplay speed and uh, use those existing, existing systems as much as possible. And, for instance, combat calculation. Um, in these types of games, combat is calculated so that you uh, take all the attacking units and take all the defensive units and make a sum of all the combat factors of the attackers and divide it by the sum of the defense factors of the defending units. And then you get a ratio. And then you take a table. And then you find the column for that ratio. And then you roll a die. I mean, it takes time. And you need to have that combat table. Each player needs to have his own combat table, his or hers, mm -hmm. in, in the lab and to look at it and see, aha, and to calculate the odds. And then I said, why would I want that? 
And I saw the system that, for instance, Mark Herman uses in Empire of the Sun, which is a beautiful game, one of the best games, war games ever. And he uses a very simple but very effective system where you just roll a die and then you get a multiplier. Mm -hmm. You get times two, times half, or maybe times uh, 1.5. And what you do, you take your attacking units sum, for instance, 20, and then you multiply it by two or by half or by 1.5. Everybody can do that very, very fast, very easily. And that's your, that's your strength. And it tells you practically that your unit uh, at that particular battle fought as twice as hard as it usually does, or as half as hard as it, as it usually does. It gives you that, that luck luck factor that you need and you don't need a table because you can remember very very mm -hmm. soon that if you roll from three to to uh, to six yeah three to six uh, you get the times one if you roll zero you get uh, divided by four if you roll one or two it's divided by two and that's it and you remember it and you speed up the gameplay yeah, interesting. I'm I'm thinking a lot about like what you said about like design goals, and I'm I'm thinking about like your design philosophy. So you started from having like a few key elements or like key goals, like wanting to make the game more playable, wanting wanting it to be fast, wanting it to be played in one sitting. Uh, did the theme come first? Did did you covering the Boston War come first, and then you adapted the theme to a game, or did did you have like design philosophies in place or like game mechanics, and then you were like, oh actually why don't i just make it about the bosnian war like because uh you, you you said you've decided pretty early on that it was going to be a, a a three player game and to me that fits perfectly on the bosnian wars like which came first the chicken or the egg kind of question yeah first came the topic uh, this is what happened with this game i mean mm -hmm. each game is a story for itself uh, for this game first of all topic got me interested which usually does because i read a lot of books a ton of books constantly and when i really find some topic that interests me when i get an idea i write down that idea and when i get some free time in the future i go back to that mm -hmm. idea and starting from that idea and that type topic i start building the game that's that's the principle i use oh, interesting. some yeah. other some other some other designers use a different principle i even myself when i started i i experimented with some systems and said oh this is an interesting interesting system like uh, impulse driven area control you have uh, in in micronella's games for instance um, and i said why wouldn't i make some game that goes like that fast impulse driven tactical game you can go starting from mechanics but in mm -hmm. this instance i started from the from the topic of the game uh, interesting and then obviously since we are uh this is the history and games lab and this is the history and games lab podcast the question we ask every single guest on the podcast is should games be historically accurate how how historically accurate is brotherhood and unity especially because you started from the topic like what was what was the most challenging part of like making a game that has all of the elements that you wanted it to to be playable replayable to be finished in in, in one setting to have three players what is the compromise in between like telling history as it happened and having a game that is fun and has all of your design goals in mind? What is uh, historical accuracy? That is an even better question yeah, because yeah, uh, especially in game design. Um, 
I mean, uh, we are making a game models in which you in which you are trying to recreate history, but also have fun. Mm -hmm. So uh, if it was a professional uh, a thing, uh, then it would be less fun and more accurate, and that would be called simulation. Uh, but the problem with accuracy is you can't really be sure uh, if your game is as accurate as could be because you only know one outcome, historical outcome. Mm -hmm. So what you try to do is by guessing and by educated guessing uh, to make a game model that recreates that one of the outcomes of your game recreates the historical outcome but that's not necessarily the the uh, the uh, most often outcome of the game you mm -hmm. try to find that that balance and you can't really uh, learn that it 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 comes from within you from all of your experiences from reading the histories to decide for yourself what for you is historically accurate for instance um in this particular game uh was it given that that Serbs uh, start so aggressively and and uh, take so much uh, area at the beginning? Was it was it natural for Croats and Bosniaks to go into alliance later on in 1994 or not? Uh, was it maybe possible for the Bosniaks and Serbs to go into alliance? And you see all those things that happened and could have happened, mm -hmm. and the historians which. Um, research those those alternate histories and try to encompass them all in the game so historical accuracy is something we strive for but we can't reach it and also we can't be sure that we are close to it and many of the many of the uh, uh, discussions on the especially Facebook group like mm -hmm. Wargamers, which is the biggest group, Wargamers group on the, as I, as far as I know, and on Comsin World, people are often discussing of if some element of the game is historically accurate because it's a controversial topic. You never can be quite sure what is accurate and what isn't. Mm. And especially with the Bosnian War, as far as I remember it, and as far as I, I, I know, it is a bit controversial, especially if, if you play with, with players from the regions. Like, did you have, <laughs> did you have any, any comments? That, you, you can kind of anticipate the question. Did you have any comments from, from, from people in the region about like, hey, this is not really how it happened. This is this, is this and this is that. Like, what was, what was player reaction, especially players who like, you know, like, like your friends have lived these moments? Like, what, was, what did they say about it? Well, in this part of the world, I think pretty much everything is controversial. I mean, <laughs> even from from the selection of favorite foods and to to football or something. Um, well, the most of the people who heard about the game from my my neighborhood were confused. They haven't seen games like this before. Many people here still are not into war gaming. Uh, board gaming is very much uh, uh, has very much spread, and there are many many uh, 
conventions and cafes who give you the possibility to play mostly euro style mm -hmm. board games but war gaming which is much heavier much deeper takes much more commitment is very very narrow and confined and when the people heard about it they first some of them were offended how can he dare to to make a game about mm -hmm. such a serious subject and then I had to defend the idea because, uh, especially uh, for people from, from Bosnia and Herzegovina, I told them that, well, we had many movies. Uh, we had uh, one even uh, was awarded an Oscar, mm -hmm. No Man's Land, for instance. And uh, Kovadi Saida was nominated for Oscar uh, this year. So if you can have films, if you can have books, if you can have uh, TV shows talking about it, why couldn't we have a, a serious, serious historical war game? Mm. Especially because the war game puts you in the place of one of the players, which is for me the most rewarding part of making a game. Because when you watch a film, you are just a spectator. Mm -hmm. You can see one point of view, point of view of the writer, of the director, that's it. But when you play a game, you get to see it from from making decisions. Which decisions would you make? And would you be as aggressive, as brutal or not? And that for some people is uh, more than they can bear. But I think as the time goes, we will spread the awareness of the necessity of gaming, especially those hardcore gaming, and people will understand the, the beauty of it. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I have a question here that I kind of want to put in here because it is it is now um, relevant. Like, are there many games which cover the the Bosnian War, like the like even no. video games, board games, or otherwise? Because I think no. if you're not used to games in general, or like e especially historical games of any nature, I think it is it is it comes as a shock, right? Like again, most people, I think, especially in the region especially in my region as well have an idea of like oh games is being reductive games being primarily for children and i think this is a a, a perception problem right um yes. but um yeah what about other games that have tried or you know to successfully or perhaps unsuccessfully cover the bosnian war do you have any other that you know of? or is brotherhood and unity uh the the first one there were several games, but um, one of them was uh, what could have happened if the war continued. Uh, the other one was by, that was from Tai Bomba. The other one from uh, Javier Romero about primarily 1991 in Croatia and Slovenia. But the, the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina on a strategic level, uh, this is the first game of, of that type. As far as I know, uh, maybe there was some uh, magazine game, but I, I think not. I, I would have heard about it by mm -hmm. now. So this is the first one that covered the entire war and the war itself, for that matter. And that's why it was especially important to do it right. Not to be presumptuous, not to be choosing sides, trying to be objective, trying to have respect for the casualties on all three sides. Yeah, the first one. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you, you said now about like not choosing sides. Um, yeah. How is it for you to play the game? I, again, this game is, is a game uh, for three people. It's very much separated, like even, even the dice and the die have separate colors. It's very much a, you know, 
this, these are the Bosniaks, these are the Serbs, these are the, these are, these are the Croats. How is it for you to, to, to play the game? How is it for you to choose different sides? Are you, do you, do you have a, a reaction to, to being put in like uh, different shoes? No, no, I have no emotional reaction whatsoever, depending on the side I play. Mm. I have emotional reaction if I play good or bad, yeah. <laughs> because I'm the designer. So I look the, at the game from the mechanics point of view. What does this mechanic do? Does it achieve what I wanted it to achieve? Does it represent the historical event or not? I am sensible in how to, to portray, for instance, uh, one very important aspect of this war was uh, the the question of refugees because since this was a, a citizen war mm -hmm. there was a, a in a break of uh, of uh, ruling structure in bosnia and herzegovina from the start because this wasn't like one very firm and and defined country uh, getting into the war. This was uh, many things at the same time. This was a breakup of the country from within, mm -hmm. an implosion of sorts. So you had anarchy. You had anarchy. You didn't have a defined front line. And one of the key aspects of the war was uh, uh, taking all the civilians from the city and just sending them away. Sending them away into buses and off you go to 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 your side ethnic cleansing was first and foremost characteristics because the idea was to produce ethnically clean state and how can i portray this in the game it was very tricky very tricky and that's when i when i decided to to abstract it into what is now known as foreign attitude in this game mm -hmm. Uh, a mechanic in which when you capture a city, uh, you cause a diplomatic uh, stress, a diplomatic uh, turmoil internationally, especially in the UN, and that reduces your, your uh, reputation, so to speak. And uh, I don't show the refugees, I don't talk to you where these people go, but behind that, mechanic you know that there are hundred thousand poor people mm -hmm. who were who were uh, fled from their from their cities to another city and that was shown on the media all over the world on the CNN or NBC or whatever and that's what uh, reduced your reputation and that's for instance one example of how when you create a mechanic you need to have that mechanic, but you need to do it in such a way that you don't hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to show refugee counters on the map, which you can then move. That would be too much, I think. But you need to abstract it somehow with some kind of mechanic of the game, which if you take too much cities in short period of time, then uh, you get sanctions. And if you go too far, NATO comes in to, to bomb you with airstrikes. And that's one example how to do it and not go too far with explicitly showing mm -hmm. what needs to be shown. If you look at the films like um, like La Vita e Bella. I was, thinking, I was thinking absolutely yeah. that, yeah. So you, you can show the horror, but you don't need to 
show it directly. And it's even worse if you leave it unsaid and unshown and just as a touch of information for you to research for yourself later on. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, of research, and this is a, a fascinating aspect of the game for me, uh, it comes together with a significantly large bibliography. Like I, I, know, I know you've, you've packaged you know, a selection of books that uh, players should read. Uh, how important is it to you that players understand the historical context before and or after playing it? Should I should people jump like like myself jump into Brotherhood and Unity with like understanding the historical context or are you are you also open to the idea of like most people not doing the home the homework as it were? Well, it depends on the player. I frankly do not care how the people mm -hmm. will approach the game. If they like the game and they find something in the game, that's that's good enough for me because uh, we all have our own ways and our own free times. For instance, when I play a game, I usually just go and play it, uh, learn about the rules, how to move, how to attack, how to, I don't know, how to defend, stuff like that, and play. And if the game is interesting enough, then I began researching and reading from the, I don't know, from the bibliography and then researching more and more if the game really uh, uh, draws me in. It's same with the with the films, for instance. If you watch the film about the thing you didn't know anything about, and if the film is interesting enough, then you start your research and maybe watch some other films on the topic. So whatever the players choose, that's good enough for me. Yeah, so, so the game is a gateway into like players finding more information. could be yeah. could be yeah, yeah interesting. and it was was in in, in many times it it it, uh, it was yeah i i we mentioned a lot about like alternative histories and alternative scenarios brotherhood and unity has a special scenario like a special variant called fight to the end where the game doesn't end uh on on the fourth on the fourth uh turn as is usual instead the game is played until one of the players surrender or is defeated what are the alternative history or what if scenarios that have emerged or would emerge from this way of playing and how do they ex uh, how do they change our our way of thinking of uh, about the Boston war like are there any alternative histories that you're like oh this this is interesting like what can you gather from from different ways that differ from the historical you know accurate uh, canonical thing that actually happened well um alternate histories are always uh, good to 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 explore and to see for instance as you said uh fight to the end is one example of what could have happened if the united nations and and the international community didn't stop the war because they did do that they did uh, force the warring sides the belligerents to go to dayton and to stop it they had their reasons why they wanted to do it, and that's why we have situation we have now. But what if they didn't? Then you could have used this game, this game model, to see if the Croats entered Banja Luka or Bosniaks entered Banja Luka or maybe Croats attacked Bosniaks. What could have happened? And that gives you a nice, nice gateway to 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 the possible conflicts in the future, because. Uh, if the situation is not yet resolved, because if there are still tensions, uh, what can happen in the decades to come? Mm. And you can experiment using this game model to see, well, militarily, what could be the next moves if this conflict occurs again. Uh, that's 
one of the ways of looking at these alternative ways. As I told you, I, I think Tai Bomba did a game in 1995, 1996. What could have happened if uh, back then NATO didn't come in? Mm-hmm. and Croats starting moving to Banja Luka and to Republic Srpska and stuff like that. Hmm. I don't know if I answered your no, question. No, ab- Feel free I'm, to yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also processing it as, yeah, as a, a heavy subject as well. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking things through. Um, obviously, this is a game that you, which is ideal for three people, but you also made it that it, uh, it is possible for only two people to play it does that change the game in any fundamental way or does it change how we think about the conflict about the war yes it does uh, i had to have two player version of the game uh because that's uh, how most of the war games are played as two mm-hmm. player games and uh, this this was one variant one alternate history in which Uh, Croats and Bosniaks were allied from the beginning to the end, which wasn't the case. Because if it was the case, Serbs wouldn't have won, I wouldn't say wouldn't have won, but uh, they had no chance of winning. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you have 60% of the population against 30% of the population. It's uh, pure mathematics. It's very hard to do that on that very long front line. You need to do something else. And that's one thing I I, I chose as, as a variant because that was one thing that could have happened. But then I had a problem of balancing the game because it's very hard to fight if they are twice as strong as you. And that's why you have uh, such a disbalance from early war in the game when Serbs are overwhelmingly powerful and the late period, late war, when the Serbs are not as powerful and the Bosniaks have really started to, to, to create many brigades. And then the very experienced player needs to play either very fast at the beginning and then very defensively at the end. For me, it's not as fun and as not as accurate, here's that word again, historical accuracy, as not as accurate as three-player game because it's completely different dynamics, Mm -hmm. completely different dynamics. In a two-player game, there's just a plain tug of war, pure balance. If somebody wins, the other one loses and that's it, just push and pull, push and pull. And when the the uh, the rock starts uh, rolling downhill, it's very hard to stop it, you know? And then you need to add some other mechanics to prevent the player who is overwhelmingly powerful to, to destroy the other one instantly. Uh, and you need to have some kind of, of leverage. And in a three-player game, the game leverages itself. Mm-hmm. If you have three players playing to the best of their ability and if they know how to play the game balances itself it's much more much more uh, in the middle of that yeah interesting and i'm i'm thinking again uh from the description pra- pragmatic alliances uh, don't happen organically in two players because you obviously don't have anyone to form an alliance with and i i think the addition of the third player really changes things up and really makes it more like tactically like uh, challenging and interesting uh, i want to i want to move the conversation to uh to um tabletop simulator and also the the actual context of you know pandemic context um many players have gone to use tabletop simulator to play a brotherhood and unity online with uh, you know uh, with their friends um how did you find that transition from players gathering around the board to now making a more than playing it online uh now i know 
from reading the description from the of the mod that they've required permission from the publisher to 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 make it into a mod. But how do you feel about uh, people playing board games, war games, any games now in a in a more digital world uh, via tabletop or tabletopia or any of these uh, services? I think it's great. It's first of all practical. Uh, it allowed us to play, even though we are all uh, confined to our homes. And um, it's practical because you set up the game instantly. You can save it. You can load it. Uh, later on and and do things like that the missing thing is being being close to somebody to mm. a friend and and taunting him <laughs> and saying hi you're gonna lose and seeing that uh, dice rolling that's the thing you are missing you are missing that tactile feeling of touching the the counters and touching the board and having the cards in your hand that's what's missing but the idea of of being able to use digital technology to do all this is a fascinating and I'm thinking of a very, very future, not future world, very near future, when we will have uh, uh, tables um, like big tablets, mm -hmm. uh, big touch tables in every cafe, and you will be able to play these games everywhere you go. I dream of that day, really, uh, going to a cafe with a friend and playing a board game. And I can save it, I can load it, I can put it on the clouds or I can finish it at home or anywhere else. And I think we are going into some kind of, of a mixed future when we mm -hmm. will mix these, these uh, cardboard counters and rules with the digital technology to give us the, the better experience to reduce that, uh, I don't know, administration, reduce the setup time to enable us to save the game and reload the game. And then also to have that counters and, and maps something will be i think invented very soon to be able to use that and i like it i i hope so as well that sounds fascinating this this hybridization of the of the board game experience of the game experience is is very much welcomed by by me um with your game uh, you have a new project attack at dawn north africa that is a video game that is available uh, for people to wish list on steam how was the transition from war game from physical war game to making a video game and how has the medium changed how you think about games if, if it has in any way well it's a different beast altogether making a computer war game it's first of all much more technically challenging much more time is used for things you you, you don't use when when you design a tabletop mm -hmm. war game if you want to change a rule in a tabletop war game, you just uh, cross a word and write another sentence and that's it and you are off to go, you can play test it. If you want to do it on a computer, you need to make a program, you need to code in, in C sharp or C++ and then you test it and then if you have a bug, you need to recompile and stuff like that. It takes, I think, for me, eight to ten times more mm -hmm. time to produce the same thing. And the game you are making cannot be the copy of a tabletop war game because people wouldn't accept it. If you make a tabletop war game, uh, like uh, my game or any other game, mm -hmm. that game is played usually in four hours, five hours, six hours. It can have several scenarios and that's it. And when you look at the price tag on the internet, mm -hmm. it, it starts from $50 to $200 plus shipping. Mm -hmm. 
And if you look at the games uh, on Steam for PC, which cost $50, $60, those are the AAA, AAA games. Yeah. Those are the, the best games. Uh, hundreds of people have worked there. You know, these games, tabletop games, are sold in a couple of thousand copies. And these computer war games or computer first-person shooters for $60 are sold in, in, in millions of copies. That's completely different. And people wouldn't accept you to, to port a, a mm -hmm. board game into a computer world and to charge it the same. And you, it takes you 10 times more time to develop it and to do it. It's incredible uh, that disparity between these two worlds. But what I did, I... I used the mechanics that I found in the tabletop world and translated it into the computer world. For instance, I wanted to have an operational level game in which you move the tanks, mm -hmm. uh, not tanks, but regiments, battalions. You see those tanks rolling on the desert. But on the other hand, to get that historical feel, that historical accuracy, I use the historical uh, uh, values for attack, for defense, for movement for each and every unit, and the historical names and the orders of battle. And I wanted to combine that hex and counter feel of a war game and a top-down view uh, with a computer game. Because, for instance, uh, many computer games that do the similar thing, they present you with the... 3D view. Mm -hmm. Your camera is at an, at an angle. Yeah, isometric view. And that view isn't giving you the overview you need. Because what I love about tabletop war games, you can uh, stand on your two feet and watch at your table, your map from mm -hmm. the top, and you see everything at one glance. And when you do these games, you can't see it because you have used those 3D models to make your game look prettier but you have lost the overview of the situation. So what you practically do, you move your little tanks up and down, but you are not thinking strategically. And when I turn my camera to see from top to, to, to directly downwards, then I got the necessary effect. And that's one mechanic I took from the tabletop. Top-down view, zoom in, zoom out. Uh, uh, unit counters, hexes, zones of control, mm -hmm. all those mechanics, and combine them with uh, real-time, synchronous, turn-based movements to, to create what I'm creating now. And obviously, real-time is not really possible, and at least not in the same way in wargaming, right? So yes. I think that's, that is a, a, a big difference. And that gives you, uh, that's one interesting thing. Um, turn-based is a way of uh, i wouldn't call it turn based i would call it sequential, sequential in which yeah. yeah in which one player does something and then the other player does something and that is the core aspect of tabletop because doing it simultaneously produces many problems mm -hmm. uh, games have tried it but uh, it very soon becomes uh, very tough to do especially in a complex game so what you did uh, is reduced your number of moving units to one or two or maybe one division for instance you move five units now you move five units now i move another five units and stuff like that that's what tabletop designers try to do in order to uh, make it more 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 balanced but in computer you don't have to do that you can say okay 
one player will give commands and the other player will mm-hmm. simultaneously give commands and then both of them will press press next turn and then those turns will be executed simultaneously computer gives you that ability and that is beautiful and that's what this real time or simultaneous movement gives you mm-hmm. which for me first of all is easier because it uh, balances the the combat factors and second of all it's fair to players not to be able to uh, play with the initiative to destroy five units because before the other player uh, mm-hmm. could could destroy his own yeah the, this balances the games mm. Uh, that's that's fascinating for me again ca- coming from a more video game background than rather than traditional board game background um i want to ask you so brotherhood and unity uh was successfully funded on kickstarter sold massively well well done with that um how was working with kickstarter like uh you have a publisher compass games did they handle the campaign or was it was it you was it you in collaboration with them how how was that process of like getting brother uh, brotherhood and unity funded on kickstarter and then actually shipped because it shipped last year how was that process well compass games uh, did all that practically i i uh, recorded the the kickstarted video but they did all the kickstarter uh, setup and follow up and support and stuff like that kickstarter was only one channel for the pr from many channels that's their policy compass games has the policy of using all available channels from consumer to their web page to their mailing lists and paper wars magazine and stuff like that and kickstarter in order to attract as many people as possible so it wasn't just kickstarter mm-hmm. only game kickstarter came in very very late on just to get another group of people uh, interested and and maybe increase the visibility of the game yeah so uh, i couldn't really tell you much about kickstarter because mm-hmm. it came really later on but compass uh, did a good job with this game it took a while it took several years because they have a very big pipeline of around mm-hmm. 20 30 games per year especially those years when i started and uh, when this uh, covid situation came in and the game is printed in china it all uh, just slowed down because when you make a game in in chinese uh, factory and they have beautiful beautiful uh, machines there that can really make really quality thick cardboard counters uh, but in order to ship it to the states it takes half a year or even longer to fill up the ship and that ship to come to the united states and then it needs to be repackaged and shipped and stored in a warehouse and then it needs to be shipped to the consumers all over the world that's the for me the biggest issue with board games in general the shipping cost and the warehousing cost Mm -hmm. and if you listen to the publishers especially for instance Uwe Eichert from Academy Games is very well known for, for commenting on this, this topic. Uh, it's very hard to, to reach an, a big enough number of sales to, to really say, all right, this game was successful. Mm-hmm. So that's why they use Kickstarter. That's why many games use 3D models plastic models because that gives the value to the game people mm-hmm. will pay more and it will be easier to to work with more bigger sales than with less sales yeah interesting yeah i i never thought about that yet but then now that you mentioned it i, I can see how these these factors could come into play 
Um, we are 50 minutes into the podcast, so let's start uh, gearing up for the, the final thoughts uh, segment. Um, you obviously play games, board games, card games, video games in your spare time, as you as you mentioned. Which games would you recommend to our audience? Not necessarily related to the Boston War, but just you've mentioned quite a, quite a few. Which games would you recommend? My couple of favorites um, uh, and games and the designers particularly because mm-hmm. what I do I follow the designers and what they do and I pick and choose from their games uh, first and foremost that would be Mark Herman and his games uh, one of the greatest designers living today especially in war gaming world uh, and his favorite game of mine and his own too empire of the sun about the world war ii in the pacific which is a very fast uh, very fun game encompassing the whole pacific war uh, and it's uh, i mean it's just a beautiful game and he did a, a interesting three-player game churchill very very different and very very nuanced combination of diplomacy and politics on one hand and and military actions on the other hand combined with card play and three player mechanics and then he has uh, Pericles the Peloponnesian War which is a single player game solo game solitaire game which is also a beautiful experience that's Mark Herman for you then you have Volko Runki who uh, is probably the the best modern new age younger so to speak designer because he uh, launched entire series of games so-called counterinsurgency or coin games which uh, have really now got to i don't know 15 volumes something like that encompassing from war in afghanistan war in uh, Vietnam, to, to, to uh, Cuban Revolution, to even uh, you have a, a dragon which deals with the Romans and Saxons in, in Old Britain, and you have uh, Gauls and Romans in, in France and stuff like that. Beautiful game. Um, so Volkoranki and his games must have at least one from the coin series. Uh, then we have Brian Train, for me, is a great designer who is excelling in asymmetrical warfare. For instance, incursions, rebellions, when one side has the government and has the weaponry, and the other side has Kalashnikovs, AK-47s, and bombs, and completely different way of fighting. And his favorite game, for me, is Colonial Twilight, that is a battle for Algiers between French and the Algerians. And of course, uh, 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 what's the name? A Distant Plane, War in Afghanistan, which he did with Volker Ranki in the coin series. Cole Worley, who was your mm-hmm. guest the other day, is a brilliant designer. So if you are not so much into historical heavy-duty war gaming, then I would suggest Cole Worley's games because he's an intelligent designer and you can really see it in his games. For instance, uh, Pax Pamir is a wonderful game. John Company Mm -hmm. is such an amazing creation. Then his older, smaller games like uh, An Infamous Traffic, about opium trafficking in China. It's a beautiful small game and it's going to be reprinted, I think. And John Company is having a reprint yeah. now. 
So uh, and root. If if you don't have anything else, you should have root. You can play root with your chi- children, with your kids, and you're going to have a lot of fun and introduce yourself to to wargaming. Root is even available, I think, on Steam. It so is available really, on, uh, yeah. uh, as a multi tabletop simulator. And for more on Cold Worldy. Uh, listen to podcast episode seven i think that was that yeah was... yeah definitely cool really and i should all of course mention dean essig who's uh i'm very fond of him especially uh of lately because his games on that military level that operational level of combat are among the best ones out there uh, especially the game about north africa deutsche africa core deck the second edition is a is a beautiful big game, and the beautiful thing about these North African games, they have large maps, mm-hmm. because when you look at the battlefield from Elagela to to Suez Canal, it's I think it's uh, one thousand eight hundred kilometers long. It's a huge battlefield of enormous desert wasteness and, and nothingness, and armies moving up and down like like ships on the sea. So Dean Essing and his games, wonderful stuff. Well, that's about it for now. That's, four or five. <laughs> that's four or five designers who all have uh, quite a few games under their belt. So yeah, thank you so much for, for that. Um, I want to ask you, what comes next for you then? What are, what are you going to do uh, next, Tom? What other projects can you tell us about it? I know a bunch of these are secret. You know, there, there are NDAs perhaps. What, what are you planning next? I haven't yet decided uh, for sure. I have many ideas written down and I can talk about them openly. Uh, what I'm certain of, I'm going to finish Attack Adore North Africa. Uh, the biggest challenge now is to make an AI, artificial intelligence, to be as good as possible so that people who played single player can have fun. And uh, I'll continue that series. I continue with that series and I will probably make some games on the topic of the my region in the World War II, Yugoslavia in the World War II, and probably get back to war in Bosnia and Herzegovina with another game on a couple of games and war in Croatia possibly, and maybe even uh, Israeli-Arab war. I'll see. But definitely I will make Attack Edo North Africa into a series mm-hmm. and these games will come in the in the periods between. No, oh, wonderful. And Attack of Dawn, when is it set to, to release? You can wish list it now on Steam. When do you have a release date? Or... I don't have a no. date yet. Because the problem with uh, AI design is you never know what you're going to find. Mm-hmm. You never know. Uh, each time you play a scenario with a different random starting, uh, starting plans, you get a different situation. And if it's not as good as it could be, you need to tweak it. And it takes time, a time, a lot of repetitions until you can say it's all right. And you can't plan it. Many things you can plan, but AI development, as far as I've seen, mm. you really cannot plan. So we'll see. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Yeah, uh, coming coming to you anyway, everyone. If you if you wish list uh, the game on Steam, you can you can get up to date with all of the wish list. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> with all of the updates on the on the game, uh, Tom. If you had one piece of advice for, for people like me, younger people, wanting to get into game design, what would that advice be? Apple. First of all, just do it. Mm-hmm. Don't think much about it. Just start doing it. Draw, do computer, whichever tool you choose. Second of all, don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, look at the other games. Look at the existing mechanics and copy them as much as you can 
and fit them into your design. And third of all, just don't be afraid, just experiment and, and research, do the research and play and have fun. Most of all, have fun. If you have fun, then you have a good game. Perfect. Thank you so much. That's sound advice. Um, thank you everyone for listening to the to the podcast or watching the podcast if you happen to be on YouTube. In terms of what's happening from the History and Games Lab, we are a bit hibernating in terms of like our activities. We have a social, which at the time of the of this recording is going to happen this upcoming Wednesday. But other than that, no planned events for the month of July, as we all kind of you know, relax in the sun as, it, as, as it's actually getting warmer in, in Scotland as well. So, but, you know, regardless, stay up to date with uh, what we have planned for perhaps further on uh, in August and especially in September when we, it has been confirmed that we will have a presence at the Freshers' Fair. So if you're willing to engage with a with the lab in a very um, tactile, physical uh, way that, that we mentioned earlier, like with board games, like with games, please do that then. Uh, if you have any feedback or would like to get in touch for a pot potential podcast appearance, our DMs are open on Twitter at HNGLab, or you can email us at HNGLabPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, for more on the History and Games Lab, please access our Linktree uh, link, which is uh, also available for you to see on screen if you happen to be on YouTube, or which will be in the description. That's where you'll find our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram, everywhere we are on the internet. Uh, Tom, where could our listeners find more about you? Uh, where can we go to, to seek out more information from you? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm everywhere. <laughs> I'm everywhere, but maybe the best way is to go to website, www.attackatdawn.com. Or for instance, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is called Attack at Dawn North Africa. Or you can uh, subscribe to my Twitter account, which is uh, Attack on North Africa or Panzer Division Games. Or on Facebook, you have Attack on North Africa. So we have Facebook, Twitter, web page, and YouTube. So that pretty much covers most of those channels. Perfect. And again, for everyone interested, I have the links in the show notes, in the description, whether you're listening on podcast services, whether you're watching this on YouTube, just to find all of the links to everything that we've mentioned, everything that we've mentioned in the description slash show notes. Um, Tom, the last word, what would you like to emphasize if there's one thing that you'd like for our listeners and viewers to, to take back from, from this podcast? What's that one thing that you'd like for everyone to remember? Play historical war games. At start, it's a bit hard to learn the rules, but when you get a grip of it, you find a beautiful world of knowledge and fun. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me. And thank you so much to you for listening and watching this podcast. Until next time, everyone. Bye. Cheers. The Edinburgh University History and Games Lab podcast is a production of the Edinburgh University History and Games Lab. For more on us and future podcasts, connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook by searching for Edinburgh University History and Games Lab. We should be the first result. Music for today's episode is Call to Adventure by Kevin McLeod, used under filmmusic.io standard license. For more information on the link and the license, please check the show notes. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time.